Hello, Horror Fanatics. I'm Frank. And I'm Jen, and we welcome you to our weekly podcast. Oh, oh. the horror. horror. Thank you for joining us as we dive deep into all things horror, supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. You can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions to our email address at oth at seriouslydecent.com. And you can check our website at ohthehorrorpodcast.com. You can. You can do those things. Here we are. So, Frank. Yeah. Would you like to tell the people about our weekend? The peoples about our weekend? (laughs) The weekend I destroyed? Well, it started on a Friday. Technically, it started on a Saturday. No, it technically started on a Friday. I was off on Friday. You were off on Friday. And I pulled probably the dumbest move of my life in the last probably 20 years. No, maybe maybe 10 years. But um, yeah, no, we have a wash, like your typical wash basin downstairs. Mm-hmm. And I was doing like eight things at the same time, going upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs. I had my headphones on listening to music, which was my big problem because I don't pay attention to anything. If I'm listening to a good jam. True story. Can so, confirm. So then um, what I did in the beginning, I had the food dehydrator, which doesn't fit in the sink upstairs, mm-hmm. doesn't fit in the um, dishwasher. dishwasher. So I went to put it in the wash basin, typical two well wash basin, mm-hmm. deep, mm-hmm. turn the hot water on, and then... Walked away. Walked away. Now, here's where it gets even stupider, because I don't hold anything back. Mm-hmm. I took the headphones off, and I was like, oh, Jen must have the washer going. <laughs> nay, nay. No. No. No, I didn't. So then, luckily, about five seconds later, I, I did the math. Did some advanced calculations. Yeah. <laughs> I walked out, and there was water everywhere. Well... I heard a vacuum, and we've got a Dyson cordless that we've had for years. Yeah, that was the shop vac I was putting to work. Well, I thought, isn't that nice? He's diligently working on this small (laughs) vacuum cleaner, and it sounds like, God bless him, he's got it working. Now, what's funny is is you didn't hear all the cursing and swearing I did before. I did not. And I was doing that at the top of my lungs. It's amazing what you can hear and what you can't hear. It's pretty enlightening to me. I I could curse, swear, scream at the top of my lungs. I didn't hear anything. But then you hear the vacuum cleaner and you're, oh, he's working on the Dyson handheld down there. Isn't that sweet of him? All I heard <laughs> was the vacuum cleaner. Yep. So, so then that evening goes by. I get all my projects done. And then 2.30 a.m., I wake up. With a new project. With, the, with a new project. And that was my body evacuating everything it possibly could at warp speed. Out of every orifice. <laughs> Front and back. Front and back. So I guess this is me now. <laughs> well, I'm thinking maybe this will just go. I remember how much hope I had that morning because mm-hmm. I was like, because I had to work at nine. Right. And I was like, all right, well, maybe, you know, all right, it's three o'clock. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's it's good. 
six hours left before I go to work. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can just get all this out of me mm-hmm. and still go to work. No. Yeah, right. Then, like, it was about every 40 minutes I had to go. And then sometimes it'd be three visits in 15 minutes. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, all this, all this liquid's got to stop at some point. At some point. You only got so much of it in you. I heard you go in the bathroom. And I heard the fan go on. And then it didn't really register. And then I could hear you retching. Yeah. And I went, oh, I immediately went to, you know what? He's probably got a migraine and he just missed the window. And (laughs) here's where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just kept going. So being the loving, supporting partner I am, I went upstairs into the spare bedroom because I was like, I need some sleep. Yes. Only yes. to realize that the spare bedroom is directly over the bathroom. And it was like you were in the bedroom with me vomiting. Yeah. So, so that fan that plan completely backfired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it just didn't stop. And to get to the degree of how much I was throwing up. What we do in the shadows when they eat the human food. <laughs> yes. That's not too far. <laughs> and honestly, if you haven't watched that show, if you're you a listener really of this. You need to do yourself a service and watch it. Yeah. Because you, you need it to, is. You need to watch what we do in the shadows because it's, um, A, it'll give you some clarification of what I've been going through. <laughs> yes, it will. So then uh, I call into work. And, and that went great. Well, you know, it's what it is. Yes. And then um then I then we make the ultimate realization we contact your brother. Yeah. To get maybe some sound advice on on what's going on. And what I, we should I describe do my symptoms and all that. Steps. And uh So we ended up in the ER. Well, what I was waiting for him when I texted him is like, you know, should I go see a doctor? And I was I was expecting him to t- type back like yeah, about three hours ago. <laughs> so we go to the ER, which was a great decision. Yes. Because if I went to urgent care or a doctor, they just would have been like, you you're going to, go to, the, to the, ER. the ER. Yeah. They gave me the pills. Didn't work. No. They gave me the pills again. Still didn't, didn't work. Two IV sessions. Two bags of IV. IV. Yeah. yeah. It should be noted, though, as soon as they hooked up the IV and then they did the second round of meds, you immediately fell asleep. Yeah. And it was the the most peace I'd gotten since the day before. I like how you say, I went to sleep. I collapsed. That's what that was. <laughs> yes. I collapsed because my you body powered down. My body was at war for eighteen hours straight. Yeah. And I was running out of anything. Yep. So So here I am drinking my first cup of chicken stock. Chicken broth. It's big steps, babe. I'm holding stuff down on the front. Yep. Back not so much. We're getting there. Getting there. Small leaps. It's baby steps. I did drink a whole glass of flattened ginger ale though you did that's my proudest achievement it it's it's a big deal i slept 16 hours today because the drugs they're giving me (laughs) make me pass out once i take them and i got what like another dose i know that's why i said if we're gonna do the podcast 
We're doing it now. We got to yeah. do it now before I get all jacked up on goon pills. <laughs> so if you're out there, pray for me. Think about me. I need it. Because <laughs> last of all, and then we'll get to the topic of the uh, the day here. This is further proving that I'm probably an alien abductee. Well, my theory. Because we talked about that last week. In the ER, and I was texting back and forth with my brother, is that your vomiting and your diarrhea can't be good for the alien baby that you're carrying. No, no, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. No. <laughs> And well, you know, we'll see. We'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I was trying to figure out a way to title this this week's podcast. Uh huh. And uh, this is when I was in the in the ER, and uh, in my delirium state, I was coming up with some blue ribbon babies. Yeah. And the best one I had was disappear, reappear. <laughs> I mean, it's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, but I figured if I wrote that down as a title, like people would read it and be like, "What the hell is that?" So here we are with missing people who have disappeared, who have disappeared, and then they turn back up again and they reappear. And they reappear. <laughs> I hope I have this much enthusiasm for the whole podcast. I hope like that would be great. I hope halfway through I don't just go and just like <laughs> smack my head on the mic and Jen's like, and we're done here. Right, so we got a 15 minute podcast. Yeah. Well, I'm sweating already. That's uh yeah. fun. Yeah. So it's yeah, us. this is this is uh stories that are related to people disappearing or becoming missing people. Mm-hmm. And after some time, they reappear and it's not Correct. your typical time frame. No. It's more odd time frames and we'll give credit where credits due. This uh this idea came to fruition when Trevor, Jen's brother, yep. texted us a uh, a link to a guy. Um his name is Vasil Gorgos and he's uh he was a 63 years old cattle settler from rural Romania and he vanished in thin air uh 30 years prior. Right. So like in 1991 he uh Tells his family he's going to go on a business trip, and he buys himself a train ticket. And he told his uh, wife and kids that he'd be back in a few days. And that was the last time his family saw him. Okay. The family reported the disappearance to the police, but nothing ever came of it. So they eventually assumed the man had met foul play. They held a memorial service and everything. Dude was D-E-A-D-D. Dead. Yeah, no, they were just chalking them up as, as Did they try on. Staten Island? No, they did not do <laughs> Staten Island. That's where what we do in the shadows. Yeah, yeah. Is that. Yeah, we do that, and some of us vomit. So, <laughs> so fast forward to August 2021. On a Sunday evening, a car stops in front of the Gorgos family house and drops off Vasile. He's so now 30 years later, he's 93. He gets, he gets dropped off at his old house. Yeah, he's 93 years old. So that takes amnesia out of it. So unfortunately, the few neighbors who witnessed the scene were too shocked and they can't remember the car's plate number and all that stuff or how the driver looked. Anyway, it needs to be pointed out that Mr. Gorgos was the only person who got out of the car. 
Okay. The driver never set a foot out of the vehicle. And strangely enough, the man had on him the same pants he was wearing the day. This is how the story goes. Okay. Had on the same pants that he was wearing the day he vanished. And in his pockets, the family found not only his ID card, but also the train ticket he bought 30 years ago. Okay. Everybody who knew him had noticed that Mr. Gorgos was looking pretty great. He was clean, well-kept, good health, which means that in all these years, he was very well taken care of. Right. The only issues he's having seem to be are neurological in nature. More precisely, Mr. Gorgos remembers his family. And in this particular thing I'm reading, the edit is, is some articles claim that he doesn't remember his family either. Okay. But is clueless about his whereabouts in the past 30 years. And when asked by reporters and family where he was all these years, he replied candidly, I was home. So I looked all into this. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's a crazy story. Yeah. And uh, I found on Reddit, and this is actually where I was reading the summary from right. on Reddit, there was uh, four four links, and they were all in Romanian. So I did the whole translating thing, right. read them all. It's a pretty crazy story, but in the articles provided, in the ones I was looking at, none of them mentioned that he wore the same clothes. Right. And the phrasing of, like, the date of the ticket was really ambiguous. Like, they didn't really say that it was the ticket or anything, you know. Just that he had a ticket in his pocket. Yeah. And then there was somebody in Reddit, and I, I really want to bring it up here on Reddit because this story broke out, like, two months ago. Right. And there was a person in the uh, the Reddit feed that said, uh, I am Romanian and I posted a comment earlier saying that the train ticket dates on 2208 or 12. So basically it, it's a new ticket. Right. Is what they were saying. Okay. As, uh, you can see in the video. So it's not 30 years old. And again, he puts as for the clothes, nobody says that they are exactly the same ones looking at them. He's wearing common clothes that can be found even today. Not sure that they had those type of clothes 30 years ago. And it was interesting because um, I guess apparently in Romania, they have people that just take off, just go. Bye. Yeah. But but basically, yeah, it, it's a weird, weird story. And then this is where oh, I hate to bag on a place because I, I use it as a source sometimes. But medium. Yeah. It's just got a love-hate relationship with that that bit. So there is this uh, author, I'm not going to name his name, but it is around the same time this story broke out. Yep. Now, just to let the listeners know, I literally put five minutes into this <laughs> and figured out that the train ticket was bunk. Right. That basically the There's no the clothes, nobody that said that he was wearing the, the same, clothes same clothes and all that. Right. So this is an excerpt from the article. In a form of a question, what do you think happened? And I quote the article here. I read all the Romanian news sources reporting on this story to try to understand what happened. Even after a few hours of research, it's very hard to come up with a conclusion or a proper explanation. Did Vasil leave intentionally? 
Maybe he just wanted to start a new life. Did he have a mistress? But did he always keep? Uh, did he always keep the option open to return to his old life, or was he involved in some dark business? And did he uh, leave to protect his family? The weirdest, most eeriest thing about this story is the fact that he was wearing the same clothes. He even still had his train ticket. That allows us to speculate about some wilder theories. Did they kidnap him? They don't say who, just they. they. Kin- kidnap him to run some experiments on him? Uh, why him? Or did Vasil step into a portal into a, a different dimension? And did those 30 years pass in a flip second for him? He thought he was home all the time, right? What do you think happened to Vasil Gorgos? So let's back up a step there. So even after a few hours of research, it's very hard to come up with a conclusion or proper explanation. Really? <laughs> five minutes. I well, was able to... In five minutes, you were able to verify that the outfit wasn't the same and that the train ticket wasn't the same train ticket, but we still don't know Well, and he's like, I, I read him. all the Romanian news sources. Mm-hmm. Well, if you read all of them, then you know he wasn't wearing the same clothes. And he wasn't... It's not a. It's not as flashy. So this a story. is where no, but this is where I like to just kind of bring up to people like, this is all for the hits. Yes. On this site. Yes. To make it a better story. Yes. So people can get wrapped into it yes. and and get the hits. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this is a time where we're in right now where, you know, it's the story now. It doesn't right. matter what the hell it the have truth to be is. True. Yeah. You know, it's not even true because like we'll never know what's true here. But at least facts. Like, it just doesn't matter what the facts are. The facts are whatever the hell I say they are. Right. And that's crazy. And that's where uh, I thought we'd kick off with that story because, A, it's what started this whole mess. And also, if you hear the story of Vasil Gorgos and all that, at least now you know. Now you know the facts. The rest of the story. Well, no, you just know the facts. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, what probably happened, because this is a common theme as I was doing research on all this, he had, he lost his mind somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, he might've slipped and fell, hit his head right. and then that's it. Yeah. And he's probably just wandering aimlessly. Now but the fact was, that he was he kept in good condition good and all condition. that, he might've been in a home Yeah, for, you know, the whole time. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then the whole, he was probably, <laughs> this is where I'm not saying it's facts, but my, my take on the story was whoever was caretaking for this guy, he's probably a pain in the ass. And they're like, you can go now. No, and then they <laughs> actually did the math or he had blurted it out. And he's like, no, I'm from this. This is my home. They looked into it and they were like, orderly, drop him off. Yeah. Yeah. Get him, get him out of here. You know, that's, <laughs> that's probably, uh, it's probably what I'm looking at. You want to go back and forth on stories or. Uh, that's up to you. Yeah, we can. You I've do only, one, I'll, I'll do one. Yeah, I've only got two, so I got that three. would actually be good. Yeah, I then, got three. Okay. So, and I can take a break. I uh, I am doing J.C. Duggard. And my source is uh, biography.com. She was kidnapped in 1991 at the age of 11 and spent the next 18 years of her life held captive by Philip and Nancy Garrido. J.C. Lee Duggard grew up in South Lake Tahoe, California, and on June 10, 1991, when she was 11 years old, she was kidnapped outside her home 
J.C.'s stepfather, Carl Probin, saw the abduction through his home's garage window and attempted to chase the car down on his bicycle, but was outrun. Weird that a car could outrun a bicycle. Mm. Probin immediately <clears throat> called local authorities who were aided by the FBI in their search for Duggard. The search included dogs, aircraft, and hundreds of law enforcement personnel, but there was no trace of J.C. And she would eventually be discovered living in Philip and Nancy um, Garrido's house, 170 miles away in Antioch, California. Her captor, convicted rapist Philip Garrido, raped Duggard repeatedly, fed her countless lies, and impregnated her twice. She gave birth to daughters at ages 14 and 17. J.C. spent 18 years in captivity, living in a backyard shack at the home of Garrido and Nancy. Duggard was locked in a makeshift recording studio by convicted rapist Philip Garrido and his wife, Nancy, in the backyard, and she was renamed Alyssa. She soon realized the major motive for her abduction. She was raped repeatedly by Philip, which resulted in the two births. Um, she gave birth to her first daughter, like I said, at 14, and then three years later at 17, gave birth to the second daughter. She spent more than 18 years in captivity with them, who fed her countless lies and largely prohibited her contact with the outside world. During that time, she wrote in a journal frequently, documenting deep depression, fear, loneliness, and feelings of being unloved. She constantly wondered about her family members and whether they were searching for her, but over time, and cut off from these relationships outside of their home, this severely depressed victim grew to cherish any human interaction, even that of her kidnappers. Duggar didn't know how to leave, and after years of lies from her captors about her, her family's lack of love for her, she wasn't even sure whether she had anyone she could flee home to. So on August 24th, 2009, Philip visited the UC Berkeley campus with his and JC's two daughters to inquire about holding a religious event. Suspicious of his behavior, the UCPD special events manager had another officer conduct a background check, which revealed that Garrido was on parole for kidnapping and rape and was a registered sex offender. They followed up by calling Garrido's parole officer, who was surprised to learn that Garrido had children. On August 26th, Garrido attended a parole meeting with Nancy Duggard and their daughters. Garrido insisted that Duggard and the young girls were relatives, and J.C., who called herself Alyssa, initially covered for him. Eventually, Garrido broke down and confessed to his crimes, enabling Duggard to reveal her true identity. Shortly thereafter, Philip and Nancy Garrido were charged with 29 felony counts, including rape and false imprisonment. On August 26, 2009, more than 18 years after she was abducted, Duggard was reunited with her mother, Terry Probin, in South Lake Tahoe, California. Soon after, the Duggard family learned from California Deputy Inspector General Dave Biggs that due to Garrido's failed parole supervision, they would be awarded $20 million by the state of California. Additionally, Philip Garrido was named a person of interest in another California kidnapping case. In July 2011, Duggard published a harrowing memoir, A Stolen Life, about her years spent with the Garridos. 
In March 2012, in an interview with Diane Sawyer, she spoke about her recent activity discussing her happiness to be back with her family and her struggle with learning how to be free. During the interview, she recalled being overly joyed after ordering pizza during a recent trip to New York City. Just walking down the street with everybody, it was my favorite moment, she said. In July 2016, Duggard published a follow-up to her memoir entitled Freedom, My Book of Firsts, in which she described her experiences after years of captivity. There is a life after something tragic happens, wrote Duggard. Life doesn't have to end if you don't want it to. It's all in how you look at it. Somehow, I still believe that we each hold the key to our own happiness, and you have to grab it where you can in whatever form it might take. What a crazy story. I remember when that (laughs) broke out. Yeah. And, like, I remember just hearing it and was just in disbelief for, like, the longest time. Yeah. and Like, how... Because what's remarkable about that story is, A, how it was able to just be, like, they could do it. Mm-hmm. And just pull it off. That mm-hmm. part was remarkable to me. What and the how she turned around yes. the whole thing yes. was even more remarkable to me. Yes. It what's shocking to me is the number of times this happens where a child is grabbed, yeah, kept for a number of years. And for whatever reason, usually it's that they've aged out of the pedophile's um, age range. Yeah. And that's usually the catalyst for them to... Create this exit strategy. Yeah. 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 It's... No, I I don't know. You know, it, it pisses me off because we're in this time era now of, you know, inclusion and getting everybody accepted and protecting people and all that. But we don't give two shits about kids in, this, really don't. in this regard. A lot and the of, part that drives me nuts is, is here's another topic that everyone could rally around. You could take all the polarity out of people. Yeah, I'll say it all the time. This is the topic. A pol- if a politician were to come out and say, look, we're going to have a war on pedophilia. Yeah. Or a war on this, yeah. you know, like just human trafficking and things like that. That... I, I've been wanting my whole life to hear right. that. And I you mean, just don't hear it. It's just the like the story where they they return back to their family is actually the it's the best case scenario. It because oh, this most right here is a total best case. Yeah. Most of the time they if they've aged out of the how old, the how, bracket, old how old they, was she when she she was uh, surfaced up. A, she was eleven when he took her. He took her, yeah. And she spent eighteen years with him. Eighteen years, holy shit! So it's a long time. Th- in this particular case, uh, he wasn't a pedophile. He was just a serial rapist. Oh no, this guy was just terrible. Yeah, you know, and that's yeah. that's what I'm getting at. Is just it, that's a form of human trafficking. It really yeah. is. I mean, I mean, and to have his wife as an accomplice and participant. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. It, it it's it's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible that not not only that it happened, but that it continues to happen. Yeah. Like not too long ago, there was the three women that were 
being held captive in the house in Ohio. Ohio, yeah. And when the man was on the interview going, I knew something was wrong when a white woman come up to me and asked for help. <laughs> it was like, you know, he was just shocked. He mm. was shocked and he was amazed. Like, he was happy that he could help and that yeah. by him calling the police, they were able to save them. But, you know, it, no, it's they just, were in that house for years. No, and there's and there's no help after this stuff happens. No. Like the after part of it, there's no help. You know, and no. this is where a lot of, like, quote unquote, street kids, they come from this type of environment. Where, whether it's a relative mm-hmm. that was, you know, violating them or, you know, usually it's always someone they trust. Like mm-hmm. the straight up, like, kidnapping thing, not as prominent. It, right. it happens, but... Yeah. But just, yeah, it just, uh, it, it, it drives me, you know this, it just drives me crazy that yeah we're in this day and age now and everybody's trying to vie for this position of trying to get some, I don't even, I don't even know what to call it, just a position of acceptance, I guess, in society. Yeah. But yet, like, kids are your future. Yes. And if you don't care about your kids then you're going to have no future. They do a lot of things under the guise that they care about the kids or that they're putting whatever this thing in place is for the kids. But at the end of the day... It's it's an equivalent of liking something on Facebook, though. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, there's no no hardened... Nobody has put their money where their mouth is. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I'll just... For a quick example, you got this huge infrastructure bill that just came out through the government. Yeah. And... How come no sitting acting administration, I'm not saying anyone in particular, all of them. Yeah. How come they've never done anything for the kids? Next story. Little better. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> little better, little weirder. Okay. So this one's Stephen uh, Kubaki. Okay. And uh, this disappearance was uh, just about a little over a year. Okay. And Stephen Kubaki was a student at Hope College. And it was a small private university near the uh, southeastern shore of Lake Michigan. And uh, he vanished in February 1978. And what he did is he went uh, for a solo cross-country skiing trip. And it was supposed to be just, he was supposed to be gone for a day, maybe two, but he didn't return. And he left this uh, 200-yard trail of footprints in the snow leading past the edge of a lake and the one-way path just ended abruptly. Okay. And it was leading... Like he got picked up by a big bird? <laughs> or an alien? One option that hasn't been discussed yet, but we'll put it on the table. <laughs> it was a Thunderbird, man! It was it a phoenix? You know, yeah. <laughs> so this led investigators to conclude, because there was an absence of any other clues, that he probably drowned somewhere under a thick layer of broken ice. Okay. That's what they were All right. They were thinking. And how he was first reported missing depends on who's telling the story. Okay. But basically a local news report from February 21st, uh, 1978, snowmobilers uh, in the area spotted cross-country skis abandoned with a backpack and contacted authorities. Uh they basically launched a Aaron land search mm-hmm. 
and the investigators knew right away who they were looking for. So in that regard, they were like, right. We know who we're looking for, right. blah, blah, blah. So, uh, basically Steven was 23 at the time and he was a, uh, a history major set to graduate that spring. Mm-hmm. And the year before he vanished, uh, he co-wrote an op-ed for the campus newspaper about the inadequate collection of books in the university library, arguing that the school should install an electronic security system to safeguard against theft. That's so 70s, you know? Like if you're not from seventies, if you're not from that time period, you're not going to get that whole joke. But <laughs> I digress. <laughs> so um, basically, people described him as uh, brilliant, a little more free spirited than the average student at the school, and uh, he lived uh, off campus. And one quote that I just love: "Big Dungeons and Dragons guy." I was like, nice. <laughs> winner in my book he was also known to be an enthusiastic outdoorsman he uh previously climbed mountains while studying abroad in europe he'd been cross-country skiing in the same area border bordering uh, lake michigan before so the trip that weekend wasn't unusual but the rest of the story is so on may 5th 1979 year year and a half later kubaki woke up in a grassy knoll in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, 700 miles due east from where he had vanished. You can draw pretty much, it's just like a straight line across. Uh, And it was a Saturday night. He had no memory of the previous 14 and a half months and said he didn't immediately realize how much time had passed until he bought a newspaper and saw the date. He found his way to an aunt's house in Great Barrington, about 20 miles from Pittsfield. From there, he was reunited with the rest of his family in South Deerfield. After he reemerged, he told reporters that he had found himself wearing clothes he didn't recognize as his own and had a backpack filled with maps and hitchhiking signs suggesting he had traveled wildly or widely. Sacramento, San Francisco, Reno, Chicago, Utah. He also had $40 in cash, new glasses, sneakers, and a T-shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin. (laughs) Here I thought the bird just picked him up and flew him and dumped him in uh, Massachusetts. No, it gets all Forrest Gump. Yes, seriously. He said, I feel like I've done a lot of running. (laughs) He did Forrest Gump it. <laughs> he said in an interview the week he re- re- appeared, his memory right up until his disappearance remained intact. He said the last thing he remembered was feeling cold and scared of being lost in the frozen darkness. He told a reporter that he believed his blackout was caused by exhaustion and exposure and said he would see a medical doctor for a physical, but he would not be seeing a psychiatrist. <laughs> he insisted that he was in a healthy frame of mind when he set off for the skiing trip and still was. Okay. Yeah. So he uh, ended up being awarded a bachelor's degree in absentia from Hope College the year before when he was feared but uh, never declared dead. They didn't declare right. him dead. And uh, apparently even the detectives who investigated his disappearance had doubts about the drowning theory. 
They sent his dental records to Chicago to see if uh, Stephen might be among the serial killer John Wayne Gacy's unidentified victims. There's been a lot uh, yeah. lately where they're trying to identify Gacy's unidentified victims. Yeah, I think there's a bigger hit count than most people want to realize with him. That's uh, Yeah. So today he remains alive and well in the Pacific Northwest working as, you ready for it? A psychologist. <laughs> Can't make this shit up. He wrote a book called Meta Mathematical Foundations of Existence. Yeah. He was tripping Godel, balls. Quantum, God, and Beyond. For decades, he uh, has refused to speak about his disappearance with reporters. He has ignored uh, just pretty much any attempts to reach him. His ex-wife told um, this person who was writing a story unequivocally that she would not be speaking about it. His parents, who reportedly spent thousands of dollars on a private investigator after he went missing, refusing to believe that their son had died, have since passed away. His story hasn't received a lot of media attention, not even really like a Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. If it is, it's really brief. It's popular in online communities concerned with the paranormal. One reason for this is the location of his disappearance, close to southeastern boundary of the so-called Lake Michigan Triangle. Yep. And much smaller in that uh, area than the better-known Bermuda Triangle, the Lake Michigan Triangle has been the site of numerous unexplained air disasters, shipwrecks, and vanishings dating back centuries. There are stories of ghost ships, ghost planes, heavily corroborated UFO sightings, and one particularly spine-chilling tale about a competitive sailing crew that passed through what sounds like a vortex during a practice run on a calm early summer evening. After a sudden dramatic fall of fog and wind filling the mainsail from two opposing directions, three wooden ships took on a life of their own and performed synchronized 360-degree turns with no one steering. Awesome. Yeah. There's more to that story, and it happened just a few months after he vanished. When so maybe he, he was the first one when, through the vortex. When he was still missing. Stephen told reporters in 1979 that he was going to try and retrace his steps to piece together where... Uh, you know, he'd been and where he, he was, has gone. Where it all went wrong. Yeah. yeah. And apparently, and here it comes. Okay. I guess he's going to have a book coming out or something like that. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the whole Forrest Gumpy thing just, you know. It's aliens. He's got a, a marathon shirt and he feels like he's been running a long time. <laughs> I'm going to go with. If it's not the vortex thing, okay, which you know sounds juicy. I, I mean, it would be pretty cool. Yeah, if that were indeed. It sounds real juicy. Yeah, but again, I'm going with another head injury or some sort of trauma. Dude was tripping balls, and then and then yeah, I think you know, or or he took some shit with him to trip. Yeah. Which, yeah. I mean, cross-country skiing and tripping, that just sounds like too much work. Hey, you know. You know. Some people Maybe need activities like that, some people need to, they need to feel alive, man. No, some people like to do a lot of shit when they're tripping. I just like to sit and think about shit. Talk somebody's ear off till they want to kill me. It's usually my deal. That's... Which is not much different than when I'm sober. <laughs> I was going to say. 
difference? What's the difference? Yeah, that's probably why I stopped. <laughs> I don't think this stuff is working. I don't know. It's yeah. just like what uh, I do. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. What do you What do you got? So I can take a break here with my my broth with your dinner. Yeah. Uh, I have an article from abcnews.com. And it's Stephen and Carrie Stainer, The Tale of Two Brothers, Horror and Heroism. Mm. Uh, the two brothers are both famous and both new unspeakable horror by Ali Yang, Joseph Ray, and Karen Schiffman, uh, July 19th, 2019. So there's the two brothers of the Stainer family are both famous. Both are tied to Yosemite National Park and both new unspeakable horror. I think that's uh, a reach. One new unspeakable horror. The other was unspeakable horror. Steven Stainer captured the heart of a nation when he helped another child escape from a pedophile after enduring years of abuse and not wanting to see that child experience the same fate. Carrie Stainer will forever be known for marring Yosemite's reputation as a peaceful retreat with the brutal murders of four innocent women. Now, the Stainer family is made up of the two, the two brothers, their three sisters, and parents, Kay and Delbert. They lived in the secluded farming town of Merced, California, surrounded by almond groves and peach orchards, and it was in the shadow of Yosemite National Park. They call Merced the gateway to Yosemite, said Ted Rowlands, a former reporter who covered Carrie Stainer's story, that's the murdering brother, at KNTV for the San Francisco Bay Area. Carrie looked out for Stephen, according to Carrie Stainer's former classmate, Jack Bungert. He loved his brother, you know, hung out with him, played with him. He was kind of a quiet guy. Our days would be just get on our bikes in the morning and go to the park, hang out with friends, or skateboard. The boys were still in elementary school when a man named Kenneth Parnell entered the picture. Parnell worked at the Yosemite Lodge, located about two hours away from the Stainer home. He befriended a co-worker named Irvin Murphy to assist him in the vile act that would shake up this family forever. It was a sleety, wintry day. Sean Flynn, a journalist, who wrote about the Stainer brothers um, for Esquire, said he and Irvin Murphy got into Ken's big white Buick and drove into Merced. It was December 4th, 1972. Then seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was walking home from school on Highway 140 when Parnell and Murphy were driving toward town. Stainer was lured into the vehicle and abducted. Kenneth Parnell stops the car and goes to a payphone. He comes back and tells Stephen... Your parents, I just spoke to them. They no longer want you, investigative journalist Pat Lalama said. When Stephen didn't make it home from school, his parents sounded the alarm. Merced was the lead police department, and so they really mounted a large effort to search, and they searched, and there was just nothing there, said Pat Lunny, an investigator assigned to Stephen Stainer's case. Carrie, the older brother, was very upset, childhood friend, Mark Marchese told ABC News in a 1999 interview, I heard stories about him going out and wishing on a star that his brother would come home. For years, Parnell traveled around California with Stephen. 
Stephen Stainer had a new father figure, and it was Kenneth Parnell, who by day was his father and by night was his rapist. Stephen was told his new name was Dennis Parnell, and he was enrolled in school. Against all odds, he flourished there. He had a great personality, said Lori Duke, who dated Stephen in high school but knew him as Dennis. He was spunky. You could see that he wanted to play and be with kids and be normal. While Stephen was a freshman at Mendocino High School, some 300 miles to the south, his older brother, Kerry, was an upperclassman at Merced High School. There was a pall over Kerry because he was the kid who had his brother kidnapped. Kerry Stainer was a very, very good cartoonist and was voted most creative at school, according to Purdy. Purdy said Kerry Stainer always wore a hat, and he was wearing the hat because he was compulsively pulling out his hair. So emotionally, Carrie Stainer was having a very hard time with his childhood and the loss of his brother. He also exhibited some behaviors that made others uncomfortable, including, as he later admitted, exposing himself to his sister's friend. So it seemed as though he had a compulsion with trying to get close to women or be sexual with them, uh, Rowland said, but he was unable to develop any sort of interpersonal relationship with any women. So that's the contrast between the two brothers. Mm-hmm. You have one brother who's been subjected to just unspeakable horror for years, but by all appearances, he's a happy-go-lucky, jovial kid with a girlfriend. And then you have the other brother who's left at home, had no interest in girls, no interest in people, and it wasn't that he was just a loner. He was a bit of a creepy loner. So and that the, was the one at home? The one at home was the creepy loner. Weird. Yeah. So... There's more. At some point, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. By the time Stephen was 14, he had been abused and manipulated by Parnell for seven years. At some point, Parnell and Stephen together realized that Stephen was growing up and that he was no longer going to be controlled by Parnell. Parnell wanted another kid that he could sexually assault. So in February 1980, Parnell decided to capture a new younger boy. He paid a local kid to ride with him to the little town of Ukiah, California, puts this high school kid out on the street to go find him a boy, and he finds five-year-old Timothy White walking home from school. Now, it doesn't say in here that the high school kid that Parnell has looking for this kid is Stephen. It's someone else. So... For two weeks, Stephen watched Timothy suffer the separation from his family. Then he took matters into his own hands. His high school girlfriend said he later told her what happened. He literally said, I was not going to let that child go through what I had already been through, and if I didn't take care of it now, it would just get worse, Duke said. On March 1, 1980, Stephen waited until Parnell was at work and then fled with Timothy. The two hitchhiked to Ukiah, California, where Timothy was from. It's dark, and Timothy can't remember where he lives, so Stephen figures the best thing to do is to take him to the police station. Not only was Stephen able to explain to police what happened to him and Timothy, he was also able to tell them his real name was Stephen, not Dennis, telling police, I know my first name is Stephen, which became the most iconic moment in Stephen's remarkable story and later became the title of the book and the television movie. Stephen was a national hero. He returns to Merced triumphant. Within days, he's on Good Morning America, Lynn said. 
On Good Morning America in 1980, Stephen shared with former host David Hartman that it felt great to be home. He told Hartman that his parents didn't change that much, but his brother and sisters, they changed a lot. I never recognized either one of them. Carnell was convicted on kidnapping and false imprisonment charges. He was sentenced to seven years in prison, but only served five. Less time than he held Stephen captive. That's fucking It was outrageous. There was out-and-out fury over the sentence, Flynn said. Ken Parnell went back to what he had been doing for years. He found someone else to help him find another boy. Only this time, he was caught and he was sent to prison again where he died in 2008. So, at least there's silver lining to the story. (laughs) So, while Stephen was grappling with his life after his escape, his brother was out of high school with his own troubles. Um... So there's a lot of reference to what Carrie did, and I'm not going to go into it here because I think it might be worth another podcast. His own episode on what okay. this other brother did. Yeah, I'm done with that. So <clears throat> to give you a a sneak peek, whatever demons Carrie had were clamoring around in his head. He liked being naked, smoking pot, and he could be at so that he could find the peace that he so desperately needed. Mm. So Stephen Stainer's fame was short-lived. He grew up, got married, and had two kids. He was very proud of who he was, his wife Jody Stainer said in 1999. He was just very well-grounded for a person that had gone through what he had gone through. Tragically, Stephen Stainer was killed in a 1989 motorcycle accident, and he died at age 24. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. So... That's when the story takes on the other brother. But, I mean, I remember the book. I know my name is Steven. I, I remember, remember the movie. I don't remember any of that. Like, you shocked me when you said there was a book and a movie and all that. I, yeah. I don't remember any of that. Yeah. I uh, I do remember that. When, and was, I, when was that? 1980 Late. was when he... No, but when it was all kind of resolved, quote, unquote. Like when the book came out, I don't know when the when the book and the the show came out, but he he got he came home in 1980 in March of 1980. He brought that. So it was probably like home. mid mid late 80s. All yeah. that crap came out. Yep. I don't remember any of that. Well, and babe, I mean, I mean, there were so many things. We had the uh, when Rabbit howls, the chick with the multiple personalities. We had uh, a child called It. We had that story. You know what we also had during that time period? Dukes of Hazard. We sure did. Looney Tunes on Saturdays. We had a great Saturday morning cartoon lineup. Yeah, it was epic. It was amazing. It was pretty much like all kids stayed home Saturday Saturday mornings. mornings and I had religion. So <laughs> there was 90 minutes of Smurfs. I only got to see a yeah. half hour oh, of Smurfs. So you never got to see how the Smurfs resolved anything. And I loved Smurfs. It was a great cartoon. But I did get to see gummy bears I mean, and the jokes, snorks. The jokes of how there was just Papa Smurf and Smurfette and there was all these. Grumpy you Smurf. Know, and, uh... No, they were just saying, where did all the Smurfs come from, you know? But, <laughs> but that was such a great. Uh, it was. It was I good. wonder. I wonder if I were to watch that now. If I'd have the same affinity for it. Yeah. You know, those are some things where I look and I'm like, I might just leave that be. 
You know, because uh, I wouldn't want to watch it again and be like, uh, you know. I did watch an episode of Classic Smurfs. Classic Smurfs. Not, it was within, well, it was Where'd a couple you watch years that? ago. I don't remember where I stumbled across it. Yeah. And when I tell you, it was like, remember when we got the um, the cereals? Like the sugary cereals yeah, that we couldn't that's what have. I'm getting at. Yeah. Well, I did stumble across classic Smurfs, and it did not disappoint. Really? Yeah. All right. Well. Neither did Snorks. I'm gonna have to hunt those down. I wasn't a huge Snorks fan. Not that I didn't like them, but like, like that was a thing. Like you had to spend your time. Like, like that's where I envy younger kids today. I'm gonna talk like an old man, but. With on-demand streaming services, you can watch whatever you want, whenever you want. Yeah. When you were a kid, you had to make a decision. Yeah. Because on one channel, you'd have He-Man. Yeah. And on one channel, you'd have, say, like, the Snorks. And yeah. it's just like, shit. Yeah. I can't watch them both. But I can see where you would choose He-Man. Yeah, I would choose He-Man, though. And that's mm-hmm. probably what happened with Snorks. You know, yeah. I just... See, I only had NBC, ABC, and CBS. And I remember yeah. NBC and ABC really, like, their cartoon game was strong. WXXA had the massive cartoon lineup. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't, you know. like I said. Well, you could get that through uh, even non-cable. You had to have your, your bunny ears just right and enough foil on top. <laughs> and, and you could have that come in. Well, but. I was I was out in the middle of God's country, yeah. so there was no amount of foil that was going to help me. <laughs> All right, we'll cruise through this last one here. Going down under. All right. Yeah, yeah. Gabriel. A knife? That's Ga- not a knife. Gabriel Nagy. All right. He's a father of two children, and uh, he uh, phoned his wife to say he was going to be home for lunch and never arrived. And uh, the following day, his burnout car was found on the side of the road. And That's not good. His wife say, you know, he'd never be away from home without telling anybody. It's mm-hmm. odd, odd behavior. A lot of character. And was very soon after that everyone started rallying around and starting putting out the alarms and whatnot Mm -hmm. and about two weeks later mr Nagy withdrew money from his bank account and used it to buy camping supplies at a store in newcastle okay it would be their last clue of his movements Hmm. and basically you know it was traumatic for everyone and it affected the wife you know obviously emotionally people would ask dude the kids where's where's your dad and you know so nobody had any answers to explain the disappearance. Um, and basically the family relocated from their Sydney home to Queensland, Sunshine Coast. The mother made sure they were always uh, in the phone book in case her husband ever found his way home. Mm-hmm. But soon they became convinced he was dead. 20 years later, and just two weeks before an inquest would have declared him dead, uh, the senior constable uh, found something. And as part of her preparations for the approaching coroner's court hearing, um, there's a, a, I think it's a senator, who had been searching for the former Sydney man for 10 years, did a final sweep and found a Medicare record in the name of Gabriel Nagy. Hmm. So um, 
his words, uh, Mr. Nagy said, I'd been living under a suit, a pseudonym for a long time, but I'd been having flashes of my proper name. Things were slowly returning and life had been tough for the sh- former shop fitter and a accountancy student. He once had a job, a comfortable home, a family he loved, but he remembered none of that. One of his earliest memories is of his uh, time in Newcastle, where he remembers bleeding profusely from a head wound. There you go. Scarring on the back of his head is constant reminder of the injury he believes caused his amnesia. The next 20 years are mostly blank, but Mr. Nagy recalls being offered shelter and work on a farm in Rockhampton, as well as odd jobs on fishing boats and building sites around Queensland. He slept rough on the streets, camped on the beach, and hit the bottle to dull the pain of his nothing life. And then in McKay, he met Pastor Barry, um, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, I'm not even going to try, a truck driver turned church man who saw something in Mr. Nagy that was worth saving. He offered him room at the River of Life Church and the job of caretaker. I jumped at the chance and it kept me off the streets, Mr. Nagy said. It was the pastor who helped him get a Medicare card in his original name when Mr. Nagy needed cataract surgery. That record was spotted by the senator who picked up the phone and dialed his number. She said she wanted to come up and talk with me, he said. There was something in the back of my head there that I must have done something wrong to have been living the way I was. But the first thing she said when she arrived was, you haven't killed anybody. You're not wanted by police. (laughs) You're a missing person, and that's not a crime. Right. She asked me a lot of questions and started showing me photographs. It was like a cartoon where flashbulbs would go off on top of people's heads. She gave me a letter from Jennifer, a letter from Pam, and letters from my dad and stepmom. Senator uh, told Mr. Nagy that, the ball was in his court as to whether he wanted to contact his family, who by then had been told he was alive and well. That afternoon, I sat down and wrote the longest letter I've ever written in my life, seven and a half pages on both sides of the paper. He posted the letter to his wife and daughter, and three days later, a message from his daughter came through on an old mobile phone he'd been given. It said, hi, Dad, and that was enough to make me cry. She wrote that she'd finished the letter and she still loved me. Ten minutes later, the phone rang and it was his wife. We talked until the battery died. Two weeks later, uh, Jennifer, then 32, flew to McKay to see the father she had only known as a little girl. He met me at the airport with a big bunch of flowers, she said. It was like it was all in slow motion and we ran through the airport in each other's arms. Mr. Nagy has remained in McKay, but keeps in constant contact with his parents, his wife, and their now adult children. Jennifer said she wanted to tell her story to show others what it means to a family to have answers when someone disappears. She believes her father developed a condition called dissociative, uh, it's F-U-G-U-E, Fug? Fug. A rare uh, psychiatric disorder that causes memory loss and often leads uh, to people wandering away from their families, which I think is a lot of this. Yeah. I want to give people hope that sometimes good things can happen. Miracles can happen, she said. If you have left home for whatever reason, ring and let somebody know you're okay. It doesn't have to be your family. The not knowing can really, really affect you in the end. Right. But, yeah, I think a lot of it is those... uh, 
The Fook states? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Or just head injuries. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't rule out. Because even like that guy hiking or cross-country skiing, if he's, especially if they had the footprints there, if mm-hmm. he slipped and fell, I got one of my concu- uh, concussions hit my head on the ice. Yeah. Playing uh, pond hockey. And, oh, man, it sucked. It just It's a weird deal. You lose your vision first. Mm-hmm. Well, you just blank out. Mm-hmm. And um, you lose your vision, you lose your hearing, your whole body. It's like it's basically like doing a reboot. Mm-hmm. Your whole system reboots, and um, and I remember. I mean, luckily we we're in somebody's backyard, and there was a bunch of people. But like, I remember every time I, because <laughs> I had a few concussions. For me, my hearing comes back first, and then the sight bit. And it is. It's like you're just booting up. Coming back online. Yeah. And um, you hear the voices. Just It's real dull. Just like, hey, 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 hey. You know, and then you look and it just, you know, it's got somebody grabbing you. You are right. You know, I can't even, like, doing these, I couldn't even imagine if I was alone. Right. With that happening. Mm -hmm. That would be weird. And then there's times where the worst head injury I had was when I was with my brother and his wife and right. their friend. And we were going down this huge sledding hill. Sledding, yeah. And nobody could make it down the whole thing on a sled. They could do it on a tube. And I'm like, well, challenge accepted. So I go on the sled and I, I try, but my brother's friend went right behind me on the tube. And, and I went down the hill and I don't know this from memory. It's just from what I've been told because I still can't remember mm-hmm. what the hell happened. But I hit and I guess my brother and everybody was saying, move out of the way, like whatever. So I tried to move out of the way and my head hit his shoulder. And they said from up there, it sounded like a pineapple or like a coconut getting slammed yeah. on like a concrete floor. And I don't remember anything until like being back like around home but they said they took me to the er yeah and like in the er's office i was like rubbing the wall like just i didn't know what it was and Mm -hmm. you know and they were like well bring him home you gotta that's the worst part when you have a head injury your head is killing you and that's all you want to do is sleep and they can't let you sleep they just keep waking you up and it fucking pisses you off because you're just like i just want to rest but yeah, they had to wake me up all the time. And they said, if, you know, there's still something weird, bring, bring them back. So they drive, they bring me home having dinner and I'm holding the fork. Like, I don't know what, what to, to do, do with, with it. it. And I remember my brother saying, yeah, we did a big sigh, realized we had to bring you back. And <laughs> so they, they kept me in the hospital overnight and they were doing the whole wake up thing. And yeah. oh, I remember I just wanted to deck that nurse to you nurses. You do an amazing job. Holy yeah. cow, the shit you nurses put up with. Holy, holy moly. You're uh you're the best. But but yeah, that's our um disappear reappear session. <laughs> I made it through the episode. You did, I'm proud I'm about of you. ready to collapse. Yeah. I'm still muscling down my dinner, my broth, but mm. mm-hmm. Yeah, how was that steak for dinner? It looked it was- good. It wasn't bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you had it. Otherwise, it would have went bad. But Yeah. I'm glad I had it, too, because it would have gone bad. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, 
as always, thanks for listening to us. Yep. We appreciate your love and support. We do. And um, what do we got for next week? We have, uh, we were inspired by Unsolved Crimes. Yes. And we are going to do the story of the Black Dahlia. Yeah, yeah. You know, everybody's done it, so why not us? Yeah, we'll take a run at it. Yeah, why not? You know. What do we got to lose? (laughs) Everything. No. (laughs) No, I'm excited to do it. That's, um. Me too. Maybe we can uncover some things we haven't seen or heard about or whatever you know but there's some good theories out there there's a ton of theories on it yeah we could probably just do a whole podcast on the theories we probably could yeah yeah we'll have to figure out how we dole that out was it this guy no i don't know was it this guy maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> all right folks rule number one no ouija boards Number two. No dolls. Three. No capes. Four. No blood rituals. Five. No cults, satanic or otherwise. Six. No apathy. You need to act to help enact positive change in the world. And maybe don't kidnap people. Yeah, try not to. If you're thinking about it, just hold back. Just don't. (laughs) Just don't. Yeah. So have a great day. Have a wonderful week. Make good choices. Take it easy, folks.